They're just weird things that leave you distracted and frustrated, things that you're almost frustrated that they left you frustrated. And um, I'm just kind of especially aware of some of those things this morning. Um, And I know that we all have some version of something that you're wrestling with. You come into corporate worship and there's a potential to not hear God's message because we're so distracted with the things that are on our minds. Uh, It could be money problems. It could be marriage problems. It could be parent problems. It could be kid problems, um, friend problems, um, health problems. Um, I mean, just so many different things that can leave us so distracted that we can't really hear from God. So I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to pray specifically. We're going to pray for a a nearby church, but we're also going to pray for just a time where we can just kind of set all those cares aside. Those cares are legitimate. They are. Don't, Don't hear that they're not important. But hear that we need to be conscious about setting them aside so that we can hear what God's saying to us this morning. Um, Because sometimes the best medicine has nothing to do with what you think the problem is. Uh, So just setting aside those cares may hear from a, a sweet encouragement from the Lord that you may not hear otherwise. So let's pray. Lord, in these uh, next few minutes, I just ask uh, that you can kind of awaken in this people, myself included, just an attentiveness, um, that the weird things that can distract us, this really, in the scheme of things, things that are really insignificant, things that can distract us, we just pray that you will just kind of push those things aside and give us a real um, awareness of your presence, a real attentiveness to your word, a real engagement of the treasures of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you will find worshipers this morning and not consumers that are coming to get our problems fixed, but worshipers that are coming to sit at your feet and enjoy your greatness, your goodness, your gospel, your son, the word, community, life, breath. Pray this morning you'll just find a grateful, attentive people and pray that you can work that in us, Lord. Uh, also this morning, I want to pray for Luke Panner and um, Il- Emily. I want to pray for their marriage and for his uh, pastoring a church in Quinlan. Lord, I pray that they are just um, blessed. I, I pray that his preparation for preaching is even more so preparation for life as a, a father and a husband. And I pray that that's spilling over into his marriage and that uh, it's blessing his family as he is changed and as his family walks on the journey of faith. And Lord, I pray that that spills over in the pulpit and spills over in counseling times where he can guide people in the journey of faith through your work through him. Lord, we pray that this, uh, the, the church there in Quinlan that he pastors will grow uh, deep roots and strong fiber and uh, that it will be built by the truth, by the exposition of the word. And um, we pray that new believers, young believers, uh, believers that may have been out of church and living in rebellion uh, can be drawn to that church and they can walk faithfully together as a people. Lord, we turn this time over to you and just pray that you'll be enjoyed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in John chapter 15, so you can go ahead and turn there. 
last week, <clears throat> we really kind of focused, John 15 was really more of an escort than it was our focus passage. Um, John chapter 15 verse 12 was our escort last week. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And we really kind of spent the morning considering how has God loved his people? How did God love Israel? How has Christ loved the disciples? How has Christ loved us? And we went to the book of Hosea and met a husband and wife. Really a tragic story turned um, good. Um, story about a woman that uh, wasn't much of a wife, wasn't much of a mother, but who God drew back into relationship with his or with her husband, Hosea, as a picture of the relationship between Israel and God. Um, it's a pretty gruesome story, really, if you think about it. And if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. But really the treasure, I think the highlight of last week's message is a great place for us to begin again this morning. That what we saw that Hosea gave Gomer and that God gave Israel was a door of hope in the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor comes from Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. Where Achan took some devoted things that he wasn't supposed to and he buried them in the floor of his tent. And the outcome there was that a just, holy God directed that Israel stone him, his family, his critters, his hamster, his tent, everything. Pile up a big pile of rocks in the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. So in this context here where Hosea is sharing this message with Israel 700 years or so before Christ. And he mentions the door of hope in the Valley of Achor. The Jews would have remembered the Valley of Achor from about 700 years earlier as a place of God's severe judgment. And then they're hearing about a door of hope. Would have been like, man, that's good news. It's a sweet picture of the gospel when you really consider how we are all guilty, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, that all of us are due the valley of Achor. All of us. No one's righteous. No, not one. And then if there's a door of hope in the valley of Achor, then we want to find that door. I have to confess that I've watched Fringe. Um, I know it's a weird... How many of y'all watch Fringe? I, I know some of you do. Some of you, yeah. Some of you just won't, won't, won't raise your hand if I admit it. It's sort of this weird show where this this alternative universe where this guy builds a door to go over to this alter, alternative universe and he went over there and got his son because his son and his universe died. So he went and got the alternative universe son. But he went through this door. And that's what I kind of envisioned. You know, if you were to have this physical representation in the Valley of Acor is this door. And I want to find that rascal because that door of hope is the way to get out of that big pile of rocks that I'm due and for us in the gospel, our door of hope is shaped like a cross. Not to be cliche, but it is shaped like the finished work of Christ. That is the door. There are no other doors. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That singular door is Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Some of you artists, I know we have a weird uh, grouping of artists and musicians are a grouping of weird artists and musicians. I don't know which it is. <laughs> you need to capture that. Somebody needs to put pen to paper 
and capture that physical representation of the Valley of Achor from Joshua chapter 7 with a door of hope. That is the good news that we do not get what we deserve. And better yet, we get what we don't deserve. You get it? We do not get what we deserve. And even better than that, we get what we don't deserve. He's loved us and undeserving people so thoroughly. This informs us how to love others. This and this alone. We don't even know how to love others. Except by engaging this. So today we're going to consider verses 12 through 17. I'll give you kind of a bird's eye view. This Sunday and next Sunday we're going to consider three things that have to do with friendship with God. Three things that are characteristic of those who are friends with God. This is the good news that I was praying about that we would engage that would be bigger than whatever our problems are. Whatever problems that we bring, those marriage problems, money problems, kid problems, whatever, insert health problems, job problems, that we would walk away this morning and go, we're friends with God? (laughs) That is amazing. So today we're going to look at two of those things. And next Sunday on Mobile Worship, we're going to look at a third thing that's true of friends of God. So let's look at our passage beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this and someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I make known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In this conversation, this verses 12 through 17, this portion of the conversation that took place on the eve of his crucifixion, really an important time in the life of his ministry with his disciples, Jesus is teaching his closest followers on what will be demonstrated the next morning. He's teaching them on what would actually be achieved in the event that unfolded the next day. He's teaching them that the greatest love the world has ever known or will ever know will be exemplified. And he's showing them the most surprising friendship that will ever be achieved. The most amazing friendship. He's talking with 11 men. 11 smelly, fallen, dirty, selfish. Remember them arguing about who's going to be the greatest? Proud, boneheaded men. The creator. We know that from Hebrews chapter 1. That Christ was the agent of creation. Is sitting and talking with 11 creatures. And saying, I'm going to call you my friends. That's shocking. In the Old Testament, we only know of two other people that were considered friends of God. Abraham directly and Moses sort of indirectly was considered a friend of God. So for him to sit with his 11 and say, I'm going to call you friends is shocking. And 2,000 years later, as followers of Christ, in essence, we are sitting in that context and also hearing the words, I call you as friends. That's bigger than your problem. I don't care what your problem is. I do care, but relative to that reality, that's bigger than your problem. It's amazing when you take it in. 
The first of the two things that we're going to consider this morning regarding being friends with God is that friends of God the Son love each other as we have been loved. He says that they will obey His commandments, and really His commandment right here is to love one another. I like what A.W. Pink said about this. He said, if we love in the sense that Jesus loved, we need no other rule. If we love in the sense that Jesus loved, we need no other rule. Something that you need to know about this kind of love, we're going to consider a couple of aspects of it, but in the big picture, it's not an ignorant love. It's not a gooey, blind love. But it's a love that actually has a trajectory. It has a meaning. It's coupled with truth and is fueled by the glory of God. It has a motive. We have to be students of his love before we even have any sense of how to love one another. We can't know how to love others unless we know how we've been loved. Turn to Luke chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to make that statement again and I'm going to add a following, the following statement. We can't know how to love others unless we know how we've been loved. If, for example, we thought we were somehow deserving of God's love, then we would only love others who deserved it. I want you to hear that. I want to make sure you hear that before I read this Luke chapter 6 passage. If, for example, we thought we were somehow deserving of God's love, then that's the way we would love other people. We would only love the deserving. But look at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And listen. You will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the Gomer. He is kind to the Israel. He is kind to the Ben McGraw and the Crosspoint Fellowship. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If you only love those that you think are lovable because you think in some way that you merit God's love, then you're saying that God loves you like a sinner loves another person. Let me round that out a little bit. We've dealt with some really difficult truths in the last seven years at Crosspoint Fellowship. Truths that really have undone many of us and kind of rebuilt most of us. Truths that have to deal with things like election and predestination. And I know right now, seven years later, it's probably been four or five years since we've begun to deal with some some of those things starting in John chapter 6. But I know even probably three or four years later that many of us still process those sort of deep, difficult truths by saying, okay, I'm okay with God predestining because he knows in advance those who will love him. That is essentially to say 
that God loves just like a sinner loves another sinner. That he loves the lovable. I want you to appreciate what's being said here. God is saying, you're going to be sons of the Most High if you love your enemies. You'll be sons of the Most High if you love the undeserving because that's how I've loved you. Not based on who's going to love me, but based on who I decide to set my love on. And he says, love others the same way. Man, when you really consider how God has loved us, then you've got to deal with realities like this. We sat as a family this week and read, um, we're, we're working through Luke right now. We read the chapter that's getting close to the, resur- or to the crucifixion where Peter is saying, Jesus, I'm going to go to bat for you. I will never let anything happen to you. I will go to prison for you if necessary. And then you know what happens later in the chapter. He denies Christ three times. Scared of a maiden girl. Eek. And that moment where Christ looks. It's a, who knows where Christ was in the process of the trials. Maybe he's being beaten as he turns his head and he looks at Peter. And Peter catches his eyes and realizes that Peter has denied him three times. The same man that the same night has said, I will go to bat for you. I will go to prison for you. And this is the man that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you should make us realize that God has loved his enemies. That God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's not chosen the lovable Peter. He's not chosen the lovable you. If you think there's something in you that's love worthy by the living God, then you're essentially saying that his love is no different from a sinner for another sinner. We've got to realize that he's loved his enemies and we've got to love others that way. Expecting nothing in return. Loving people who are difficult. Obeying this commandment means gomers loving gomers. Do you see that? Obeying this commandment means that if you forget you're a gomer, then you're not going to love anybody else. Because nobody else will quite suit your love. If you forget you're a gomer... You're not going to love anybody else unless they might happen upon a day where they're actually lovable. But that's going to last maybe a day because they'll prove otherwise. But loving others as we've been loved says, man, we are tax collectors loving tax collectors. Do you hear that? It says we are people desperately in need of grace loving others who are desperately in need of grace. Man, that makes for a shocking, salty bright, aromatic people. A truly humble people. Simon Peter's loving other Simon Peter's. This perspective makes for real patience and real gentleness with each other and it makes for a just scandalously different church. What the church should look like. Something else we know from this passage is that it is a life-laying love Greater love had no one than this, and they lay down their life for their friends that loves even unto death. Made me think of Paul's directive to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave themselves up for her. <clears throat> years ago, I remember studying that passage or reading that passage. I don't know if someone was preaching on it or what, but years ago, considering that passage, thinking, man, I would lay down my life for my wife. If someone came into our house, an intruder, and had a gun 
and they're going to shoot Christy. I would dive in front of Christy like a secret service agent and take the bullet. I would do that. But you know what? That's easier than taking that bullet every single day. That's a whole lot easier than washing the dishes when you got nothing left. That's a whole lot easier than helping fold the laundry. That's a whole lot easier than going for a walk. Men, I'm talking to men, because ladies are going, what's the big deal about going for a walk? But men are going, I know, dang. (laughs) Going for a walk? I got stuff to do. That's the way men are thinking, most of us. Taking a bullet from an intruder is a whole lot easier than sitting and listening to our wives. Again, ladies are going, what's the big deal? And men are going, right. (laughs) True. It's a whole lot easier to take a bullet than it is to care for your wife tenderly every single day, putting her before yourself. I am so far from having this down. I don't know that I'll ever have it down, but I'm convicted about this as I see that true love lays down its life for another. Like a husband lays down his life for his wife while nobody's cheering. On an ordinary Tuesday, not on a Saturday night break-in. God's love toward us is boundless, but I want to say in the same breath that it's not stupid. God's love for us is boundless, but it's not stupid. We were in Hosea last week. You don't need to turn there unless you just happen to have your finger nearby or you can, or in Hosea nearby, you can flip over there. But I want to develop something for you. Remember how the story unfolded. Hosea marries Gomer. They have a child together. And then Gomer has two more children without Hosea while she's out running around. The first child is named No Mercy. The second child is named Not My People. And then God tells Hosea, I want you to go do with Homer what I'm going to do with Israel. And we pick up in chapter 3. He says, Go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Here, a Simon Peter. Here, a tax collector, a sinner. Here, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Here, the church. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her, remember the slave market scene, I bought her for 15 shekels, a half price whore, for, uh, 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. Now listen what, what Hosea says to his wife now. He says, And I said to her, Gomer, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. We are to love others as we've been loved. And that love is boundless, but that love's not stupid. That love is ready and able to say enough is enough. It's time to repent and turn from that. God says it to Israel. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, i.e. the Baals, without ephod or household gods. In other words, it's time for you to repent. Enough is enough. God's love for his people is boundless, but it's not stupid. Makes me think of John chapter 8. Or the woman that's caught in adultery. You probably remember the story. It's a pretty significant, prominent story. It's interesting because it's sort of controversial that it should even be in our Bibles. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, but it is in the later manuscripts. But it sounds enough like Jesus that I think we'll leave it in there. 
with the Pharisees, they bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And they say, what's she going to do? Should we stone her or let her go? And Jesus leans down and starts writing in the sand. He says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember the story? The oldest walk away first and drop their stone. The youngest leave. And eventually it's just Jesus standing there with this woman caught in adultery. And he says, what happened? Woman, there's nobody here to condemn you anymore. And what does he say to her next? He says, go and sin no more. And love is boundless. But love's not stupid. And love calls those friends to repentance. The reality is we can't know how to love others unless we know how he's loved us. For example, if we weren't tuned into how he loved us, then we would never rebuke a Pharisee like Jesus did. If we weren't tuned in to how God loved us, then we would never rebuke a friend. We would never say, enough is enough. It's time to quit running around on Hosea. It's time to come back to God and your commitment that you made. And friends have that responsibility in each other's lives. We would never want them to feel uncomfortable if we weren't informed by how Christ loved the disciples. We would never want to be what we might call or what the world might call unloving. But Jesus loved those 11 with three years of, no, that's not it, guys. No, that's not it either, guys. No, that's not it. I'm not that sort of king. No, that temple is not impressive. I'm impressive. No, he's not blind because his parents sinned or he sinned, but he's blind so I can be glorified through him. No, Lazarus is not asleep. Lazarus is dead and we're going so I can be glorified in his resurrection. No, Peter, get behind me. You're a hindrance to me. No, men, the rich aren't blessed. In fact, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's not it, guys. If we didn't know how Christ loved his disciples and how he's loved his people, then we wouldn't know that love and tolerance are not even close to the same thing. We wouldn't know that we love with truth. We wouldn't know that we love with words illustrated with actions. Friends of God love others. As we've been loved. The second thing that we can consider about friends is that friends are in on what God is up to. Look back at John chapter 15. This is a treasure. Friends are in on what God is up to. John chapter 15 verse 15 says, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You were once servants, and now you're friends. Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 has another version of the same reality. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're in on the plan because of what Christ achieved on the cross that next day. 
He's speaking to those disciples, letting them know that friends and sons are in on the details. They're in on what God is up to. Y'all can probably relate to this scenario. I, a friend of mine, actually it's somebody in this church has a business where you can walk into their business and it's sort of everybody um, in the waiting area and then there's a shop full of people working and they're all busy and then there's the boss's office with a door. And when I show up there, we go in the boss's office and we close the door. And the shop doesn't know what's going on behind closed doors. They don't know the sort of things we're talking about. And this is one of probably many meetings that happen behind closed doors. And those servants, we might call them that, are not in on the details of what the boss is up to. But when you become a friend of God, you become a son of God. It's like that door is opened up and you're called into the office for the details. You're called in and you're tuned in to everything that's going on. You're privy to the plan. As friends and sons of our God, we're in on what God is up to. I want to show you a picture of this. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage from James with you regarding Abraham. We're going to look at Abraham for a moment and look at what it means to be a friend of God. James chapter 2 verse 23 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. That's important. Abraham is a friend of God. So let's see what this looks like over there in Genesis chapter 18. <clears throat> and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks or terebinths of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So you kind of climb into the setting and context and story here. Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent. Sarah is in the tent. I don't know if she's kind of straightening up around the tent, folding laundry. We don't know what she's up to. But Abraham's just hanging out at the tent. And it's like this grove of trees, the terebinths of Mamre. And Abraham's sitting there. He lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth. He says, O oh Lord, turns out the Lord was one of these three. He says, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that, that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to them, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, oh, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, now how the Lord showed up in human form, I don't know. We don't know if this was Christ. We know it wasn't Jesus necessarily. But it may have been God the Son showing up in pre-incarnate form. Or a theophany of some sort or a vision. But he shows up in human form. It's God. This is God speaking with him. And he says... I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah snickered to herself saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That is pleasure of having a son. That's a pretty good joke. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, Oh, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, yeah. Remember how friends shoot straight with friends? She said, he said, Oh, yeah. But you did laugh. You did laugh. And then the men set out from there. I want you to watch where this story goes now. They've broken bread together. The Lord has showed up with two others. We don't know who they were. And he gave them the good news that you're going to have a son. Even if you snicker about it, you're going to have a son. And now he, and he eats a meal and then he departs. And Abraham follows with him. The men set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. If you're familiar with your Bible and the stories in the Bible, you know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. So you know what's in store for Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said to himself, or said to the others, we don't know if he's, it seems like almost like he's kind of talking to himself right here. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from my friend what is about to unfold? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him. He's my friend, you could say. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. That's a long way of saying, hey, since Abraham is our friend, let's let him in on the details about what's about to happen to Sodom. And then the Lord said, to Abraham, his friend. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. He said, I'm going to let you in on the details because you're my friend. I've heard some terrible things are going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, so I'm about to go check it out. And look what happens. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What you're seeing Abraham do now, the Abraham, this friend of God, you're seeing him mediate for others. It's beautiful. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, I who am but a gomer, have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Lord, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Abraham, okay. 
All right, verse 50. If I see 50 there, I won't destroy it. If I see 45, I won't destroy it. And again, Abraham spoke to him and said, Suppose there's 40 found there. And he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. It's an awesome story of what friendship with God looks like. Friends of God are in on the plans. God speaking to his companions or speaking to himself says, He's my friend, so I'm going to let him on the details of what's about to unfold. They're grounds for him knowing what's up. He lets him in on some good plans. You're going to have a son. And he lets him in on some bad plans. Judgment is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. The thing that struck me when I considered the Lord speaking with Abraham and Jesus speaking with the disciples, his 11, and calling them his friends, is if a day for the Lord as, is as a thousand years, it's probably about 2,000 years be, between the time that the Lord sat and talked with Abraham and the time, the night, the eve before his crucifixion that he talked with his disciples. So in the mind of Christ, this just happened a couple days ago where he sat down with Abraham, his friend, and said, I'm going to let you in on the details. And on this night, the eve of his crucifixion, this same God, in this case, God the Son, is speaking to his friends and saying, I'm going to let you in on the plan. You're Abraham's offspring, so I'm going to treat you like I treated Abraham two days ago. And I'm going to let you in on the details. All that I have heard from my Father, I make known to you. So when God the Son tells his followers that we're friends, we can anticipate the same level of insight into the secrets of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. As I read this passage, I want you to imagine the Lord standing next to you as you look down on Sodom and the Lord sharing with his friends some details about what's going to unfold. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Now concerning the times and the and and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves consider as our friends, as friends of God, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, you could just imagine in Sodom, they're saying peace, security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, as friends of God, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness." 
This picture in Genesis chapter 18 where the Lord is speaking with Abraham is such a sweet picture of what God is doing with us through this First Thessalonians passage right here. It's like we're standing on a high place overlooking this world that we live in. And he's telling us, as friends, I want you to let, let you know something. There's another judgment coming. And I'm going to let you in on the details. And he's given us time to mediate for these people, just like Abraham mediated for those in Sodom. And he's also given us another privilege to step off into Sodom and to preach the good news that judgment is coming. Before the world is deluged, not with water this time, but with fire. The passage I want to close with this morning is in Psalm chapter 25. It's a treasure of this picture of being friends with God. Psalm chapter 25 verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. New American Standard renders friendship as the secret. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. It's a great picture that friendship and the inside scoop go together when we're friends with God. You know what the plans are. You know what the details are. You know what's about to unfold. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together and what I want to encourage you to do as we take the Supper together is just consider a couple of the things that we've looked at this morning. Consider that Christ calls these disciples, these 11, His friends. And He calls them His friends on the very night that He took the Lord's Supper with them. He dined with His friends. And then remember, if a day to the Lord is as if it's a thousand years, two days before he dined with his other friend Abraham. If a day to the Lord is a thousand years, then two days after his crucifixion and resurrection, he's dining with us through this supper. That's what this is. It's not an empty ritual. We're dining with our God. We're dining with our God that calls us friends. It's what friends do together, is eat together. So as we take this supper together, I encourage you to realize that you're eating with someone who's made you their friend through the cross. That's good news. Let's take the supper. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, literally translated, that would be like munches in Greek. Gnaws. Whoever gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. few verses later in verse 66 John chapter 6 it says after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him too much that sounds over the top you know it sounds like almost like um, like it's your whole life like Christ has just consumed you that's what worship is 
As you take this, I want you to think about something. We are eating, not only eating with our God, we are eating our God. We are imbibing, we are taking him in. We are digesting and munching and gnawing on his greatness, his goodness, on his word, on what he's done. That's what worship is. The notion of just going to church and just kind of touching something once a week or periodically or just when things are difficult, that's not worship, that's consumerism. And really that's an affront to God, I think. Worship is just to enjoy Him. So let's enjoy Him together as friends and as the meal. Let's take and eat. It's got to be bigger than your problems to know that we can eat with our God. Problems will always be there. Those should be, in fact, escorts to be scandalized, ravaged by these sort of amazing truths that we can be friends with our God and dine with our God. Man, that is the good news. Let's drink together. Let me pray. We'll continue in song. God, I pray that pray that you'll arrest us with these sort of realities. Not, not only do we get to eat with you, but we get to dine on you. Lord, I pray that this weekly reminder that we have of the supper, I pray that it will build an ethic in us that just views the world differently. I pray that it will build something in us that makes us long for this time, that we'll find contentment in this meal, that the meal of the world will pale in comparison to the meal in faith with your people. Lord, I pray too that it'll be a weekly reminder of what it really means to follow you, that it means lordship, it means that you are our savior, it means that you are our heir, our food, that we dine on Christ. Lord, I pray that whatever notions that pop into our head that make that sound like that's over the top are too much, are overzealous, I pray that you will just shed light on those and show us what it means to be a worshiper. And Lord, I pray that it will be the truth that moves us in that direction as we see these realities about the gospel, that we see that we are friends with you because of the cross that that will just change our disposition on everything. We're thankful that we can be content in this meal. I pray that you will continue to grow us in that. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song. Y'all stand. We're going to take up our offering, but I think we can do that as we stand. But stand as we sing, and uh, as we um, as we do so, uh, there's times where it's appropriate to lift your voice really high. And considering this morning that we're friends of the king, we're like a Mephibosheth and a Gomer seated at the table of the king, a place um, reserved for people of royalty, and we are not that. And so I encourage you to lift your voice as high as we consider the amazing blessings that come from God. Quick announcements, but I wanted, I was thinking about something uh, as I was, as we were singing there. Um, there. There's lots of weird confusion in the church about Trinity about Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to make sure that a statement that I made is not misunderstood about this theophany, whoever this was. It was Father, God the Son, who revealed themselves to Abraham. And I said that wasn't, you know, Jesus. 
it could be God the Son. I want you to think that the Son morphs into like these different things and God becomes the Son and then He becomes the Holy Spirit. God is God in distinct persons, three distinct persons who are all equally God. They're not one-third God. And when I say that wasn't Jesus, I mean Jesus was born in Bethlehem and He is the Son of God, no doubt. When I say, when I refer to Jesus, I'm referring to that person from that point on when he was named Jesus. But that could have likely been the same uh, person of the Trinity that sat and talked with Abraham. (laughs) Maybe that's a better way of saying it. May have been the same exact person of the Trinity that sat and talked with Abraham, that sat and talked with the disciples. It's God. So even if it's not God the Son, it's close enough as far as I'm concerned. Okay. A couple of announcements. One is uh, these little bottles. We've got some under the table right out here as you leave. If you've taken those bottles, I want to encourage you. We're, we're collecting those things back during May. These are bottles for the uh, Pregnancy Resource Clinic in uh, Greenville. Um, a lot of our, or some of our folks work with the uh, clinic here at our church. Some, some of the wives uh, work there. And um, some of the families give regularly to this ministry. I want to encourage you to not just collect your pocket change. Although kids, this may be a great exercise for you getting some, some spending money together and putting that in here. I want to challenge the adults to make a commitment to be part of that ministry. That's not hard to do. I mean, you're talking 25 bucks a month, you know, taken from your credit card or from your bank account where you never even see it where they can plan a budget around those sort of commitments. It's hard to plan a budget around a bunch of baby bottles. And you need a budget because you hire people and you do things that cost money to minister to women so they won't abort their babies. <laughs> it's a worthwhile ministry. I want to encourage you as a family, consider, hey, man, maybe we could cough up 25 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, and make that commitment and put a check in there with a note to have it drafted out of your bank account where you never even see it and you just get used to it not being there. That's not a lot of money. Go out to eat a couple less times in the month and let somebody build a budget that could really, God could really use. That's a worthwhile ministry to participate in. So I encourage you to, let's get those back. Um, you can bring them during the week to the office here. We're open, or the office is open here. I may not be here, probably won't. Monday through Thursday, but Biola will be here Monday through Thursday. And, um, and then next uh, Sunday, we'll be at mobile worship. So you can bring that then. That's the next announcement that I've got is next Sunday we, we're having mobile worship at Grand Park. <clears throat> Grand Park is a portion of town that we've sort of committed to. We've kind of adopted that side of town um, and that park as a place to really try and have a presence. And um, so that connects with something that we also do periodically is have mobile worship. Uh, we really have to work hard to remind ourselves that the church is not a building. That's kind of our paradigm. You know, we go to church. Where are you going? Oh, man, we're going to church. What are you going to do tomorrow? Oh, we're going to church. I don't, you know, I know that seems like it's semantics, but it's more than semantics. When you think of the church as a building, then it contains what the church is to a geographical location. And if you think about it, it contains it to a day of the week. Because when do you do church? On Sunday. Or maybe if, if you participate on Wednesdays, Wednesdays. The church is not an activity. It is a people It's not a building. It's not a location. It's a people. So we have to kind of remind ourselves that, man, the church is mobile and agile. Mobile and agile. We can pick up, mobilize, and worship wherever we want. Whenever we want. 
So that's what we're going to do at Grand Park this next Sunday. We're going to be under the pavilion there. And uh, you're welcome to invite friends. It's sort of a more outward focused. I use that. Let me develop that a little bit. We're more attentive that we may have some, some visitors from the community around Grand Park on that Sunday than we might be on a given Sunday here at our location. Um, so ultimately, we want to equip the saints for the work of service. <laughs> Uh, but we do want to be attentive on those mobile worship Sundays that that may be the first time someone ever engages the church corporately. So um, that may be a good time to invite somebody. Uh, and also this Wednesday, in preparation for that, at 6 o'clock, we're going to meet at Grand Park and we're going to visit the neighborhoods surrounding Grand Park and pass out flyers for mobile worship and also for our summer clubs that start on June the 9th, uh, Wednesday, June the 9th. And going progressively or for every Wednesday from that point on for four Wednesdays. Family summer clubs where it's really sort of our version of VBS. We just really kind of were convicted that our community has such, is so inundated with VBS that providing another VBS is sort of uh, um, redundant. And that's not to say that VBS is bad. <laughs> not at all. But we kind of saw this thing where these Christian kids would just go from one VBS to the next. And mom and dad would kind of have a summer off, you know, while the kids are VBS from one church to another. We want to engage the community. And we also want to engage families. So that's why we're doing something a little bit different. So on Wednesday nights at uh, 6.30, I think is the time that we meet on Wednesday nights, uh, starting June the 9th, we'll be um, gathering as families out there and trying to connect with the Grand Park um, some of the families that are surrounding Grand Park there. So this Wednesday night, 6 p.m., Grand Park. If you're nervous about passing out flyers, I want to encourage you. That's, I really think that's Satan. I really do. Because it, it, it's totally cool. I mean, in one time in seven years, if I had anybody say, get off my property, one time. And I, he was like a, um, he was really, really unique. I mean, I'm not saying he pers- compared to everybody else. I mean, in seven years of doing lots of this, I've never had anybody be rude or, or, uh, or unruly or anything like that. So I think that's Satan. I think, you know, there's, if, if our Lord is not worth us knocking on some doors and saying, and here's how it goes. If you're not in a church home, we'd love to have you. We're going to be worshiping at, at, mobile, or, uh, at Grand Park, and we'd love to have you and your family. It would be a real treat for us. And qualifying it with if you're not in a church home. We're not trying to woo people from other churches. We're trying to connect to those who aren't in a church home in this community. That's what we do while we mediate in Sodom and Gomorrah before judgment comes. You see that? See that connection? Lord, if there's only... How about if there's 45? Will you wait? That sort of heart that has a burden. He had a burden for those people. We share that burden as friends of God and we're mediating with a good news and an invitation to come join us at the table. We have nothing else to offer. We don't have smoke and mirrors, no dancing girls. Just the preached word and a bunch of people that are enjoying each other and enjoying the Lord together. But come on. That's all it is. So that flyer says that on one side and on the other side it has the information about the summer clubs. So uh, June 2nd. I think they start officially June 9th. But June the 2nd we're having a picnic out there. So... You could say June 2nd. Um, the last thing I want to encourage is, um, you know, 
It's kind of a long announcement time, but they're important announcements. I don't do this very often, so when I do it, I want to make sure I hit what I need to hit. <clears throat> if you're a guest here this morning, I just want to tell you thank you for being here, and you're welcome. And I want to encourage those who are regulars, our family, to meet those guests. If you see somebody that you don't recognize, make the point to shake their hand and welcome them. And the last thing is, if we eat with God, if friends eat with friends, then I want to encourage you today or this week, especially with us not meeting on Wednesday nights, um, except for this one to visit the neighborhood, spend time with other families in the church and dine together. There's something about eating together. Open up your table uh, or go out to eat somewhere and just spend some time enjoying each other. That's what people do together. That's what God's people do together. All right, y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. God, we're thankful for the time that we've had together this morning. We are um, thankful for the finished work of Christ that's made us friends with you, uh, that makes, makes us friends with God the Son. Lord, we uh, pray that we will be um, ravaged by that, blessed by that, scandalized by that, um, joyful about that, so much so that whatever problems we face, whatever trials we're facing this week, that those will all pale compared to that good news. And Lord, we uh, are just so blessed to have spent time together. We uh, pray also in advance for Grand Park. We just pray that, that you will connect us to families or connect us to, to those in the community that don't know you and aren't walking in faith and that we might have an opportunity to engage them and enjoy you out loud on that side of town. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.